Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of this podcast where you just never know what you're going to hear about. This one week, it may be espionage, and I mean, it's just craziness. But I tell you one thing, one common thread, and that is nursing, healthcare, and all of those things. And this week, I have one of my just I just, he's like one of my favorite people in the whole world. <laughs> it, but it's, the bad thing is he's only half of a person because really he's kind of like, <laughs> I feel like I'm like, where's your other half? Where's the other half? And you half? think I'm talk, yeah. talking about his wife, but no, I'm talking about. No, talk about I'm Ben. talking about Ben. Yeah. You guys yeah. know who this is. Talk about Tom. Ben. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've been here a couple yeah. of times where Ben is sad he couldn't Aww. make it tonight. There is a raging epidemic of chlamydia and koala bears in Australia. Oh, dang it. And he has been tasked to go down and help with that. Oh. I couldn't think of anyone better to deal with chlamydia and koala bears than Ben. Ben so is, he is... He's a saint. He's quite a guy. Yeah, he, he really is. I mean, who else was going to do that work? I no, wasn't. Nobody so. would do that except him because that's just how he is. <laughs> except for, he's just that type he's of guy. That. Christmas time, he's like, what is more cheerful than curing an STD and an animal that he will never meet? Yeah. I mean, that's really how he spends wow. his time. So, <laughs> but, you know, I'm here. So that's, you know, that's really, if you think about it, the important part is the me. Well, so. I'm glad you're here. And I definitely miss Ben, but... It- so happy to have you here if, if, for you guys if you're just tuning in for the first time you're probably going what are they talking about so every week i have a usually a different guest host from i don't know maybe somebody i know or another podcaster but they are generally another healthcare professional and tom and ben have a podcast called we'll continue to monitor well, actually they have several podcasts but <laughs> let's just focus on the one <laughs> for now yeah that's the one yeah <laughs> he's joining me this week to help me talk about this really interesting story it's really a sad story but i definitely want to get this story out there but before we get into the bad nurse story i want to take a moment and i've done this the past couple of weeks because i hit a little hiccup and I got like I got a negative review on Apple Podcasts, and I thought my heart was gonna just. I felt like somebody had ripped my heart out and stomped on it. It was terrible. Like I, I don't even know why I'm so sensitive. But I, I think I even screenshotted it and sent it to you. And I'm just like, this isn't even true. This isn't fair. And I'm like, <laughs> you can't even re- respond to them. And so it really upset me. And I think. It, at some point, somebody was just like, you know, you should just go on and tell your listener. Like, you have like 5,000 people that listen to you. Why are you worried about one person? And I'm like, I don't know. I honestly don't know what is wrong with me. So the past couple of weeks, I've said something at the beginning, like, you know, I said something about it. And then after that, oh, my goodness, 
Like so many, so many people have jumped onto Apple Podcasts and left like five star reviews. And oh, that's fantastic! I just, oh my gosh, I've been so renewed. My spirit has been renewed, and I'm just like, I it is just I don't know. I get discouraged easily. I guess. <laughs> we, well, I was going to point out. I agree. Like. Well, as a, as another person with a podcast, I do care about criticism, really, really do, but I don't let it get to me like that. I guess if somebody doesn't like me, I guess I don't care. I'm just like, okay, you don't like me, you know, that's fine. But if they have an actual way they can make my show better, I really want to yeah. hear it, you know? So I, I think that there's a misconception that, you know, we don't want to hear bad news. No, actually, I want to hear criticism. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear you're dumb. So, well, I mean, you know, I'm like, oh, and I okay, mean, even if know. they're like, hey, you talk too much, you do too much chatter. I mean, somebody's probably already sent a review right now. Like they are, as soon as this, they just talked and talked. And talk. <laughs> she should have talked about and reviews. Like, <laughs> yeah. Okay, fine. That's fine. But they miss their, they misrepresented what I said. And that's what really, I can't stand that. I, oh. No, and I, I understand that. I really do. But like I said, I'm like, I don't know. There's so many other people honestly love you i guess i wouldn't be too worried i do want to point out something though i'm pretty sure that was the episode i was also last on with you was the one you got the one star and that's why you sent it to me so maybe the problem isn't you no it was me i'm the one no, no it was maybe it, it, maybe the problem no, is I, me I, maybe the problem is she's just like i'm tired of this they, dude. no this person this is the tom and tina show this is the tita no, show she so. let me have it i'm not very smart i am an idiot yeah so <laughs> oh my goodness. anyway anyway i wanted to thank you guys for really just coming to my rescue i just feel like wow they really stepped up because i it's honestly not that easy to leave a review i found that out when i was like how do i do this deck i mean i'm gonna go in and leave reviews for my favorite podcast then i'm like the way how do you even do that so uh, i appreciate you guys thank you thank you thank you so much they are and you do you have a great show and you have great listeners so we're always when ben is not treating koala bears for chlamydia uh we both love and you know being on the show but i you know am always glad to be here myself so as long as i don't cause any more one-star reviews because i don't want any more anxiety no, advice, so <laughs> CBD Stat, they're amazing products. Love them. They support our podcast. Their CBD product is some of the absolute purest CBD out there. And some of my friends use it for headaches. I personally use it for foot pain. It helps with some people with their back pain. It's truly an amazing product. And they are so good to healthcare professionals. Such a good company. You know, I was able to use their product for the first time after you and I returned from Washington, D.C. for the Nurses March. They provided me with some samples. And I used it on a sore knee and then later on a sore wrist. And it helped so much. My daughter even uses it on her back for her scoliosis. And it really does help. That's amazing. And of course, their products are 100% THC free, which is great for travel nurses who have to take a drug test every three months. They only offer very strong CBD greater than 1,000 milligrams. If you're interested, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. That's cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they'll know that we sent you there. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health, and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. 
I guess we can get started with this Badner story. It's, it's a very interesting story. It's a story, actually, we're going to start off talking about the victim in this case, which I always like to be able to do anytime we can, kind of honor them and tell a little bit about them and their story. But a lot of times in these stories, you don't have a lot of information about the victim. Or sometimes it seems slanted. Like right. It just, it like, they're the bad guy, so the story off, starts off with them being the bad yeah. guy. And I'm like, that's not always true. Sometimes, you know, stuff just happens, but... So I, I really, I like that we were able to get a little bit of, a little bit more information and we, we're, we're going to kind of focus more on him, especially in the beginning of the story. It's the story of Brian Everett Perry. Perry was a gunner in an army infantry unit during Operation Iraqi Freedom. And he was injured in September of 2003 and was honorably discharged from the military with a purple heart. He was a gifted poet and aspired aspired to return to school to become a welder. So he had some dreams, some, some things to look forward to and things he was aspiring to be. Also wanted to become a father at some point. However, on the evening of November the 3rd in 2016, horrific events unfolded and his dreams would definitely go unfulfilled after this night. So Oregon's Clackamas County Interagency Task Force performed a controlled drug buy at Eastport Plaza. And Perry and his girlfriend, Bridget Mountsier, were present during the transaction. Now, I am going to say right here that a lot, this information is taken from articles, it's taken from a lawsuit. So there is actual court records that state these things. And yet, I also want to be very clear that just because it says something, someone testified to something, or it's stated as such, and even in a court document, I am not saying that it is 100% true. I am saying I found this information in an article or I saw this information in a court document. So I just want to make that clear. Just, I don't want to, especially, you know, with the girlfriend, I honestly, I don't know, but this is the information that that we have so far to go on. So Perry was recognized by his parole officer who was part of this task force. And the parole officer knew that Perry had an outstanding warrant for a parole violation. So they arrested both Perry and his girlfriend on outstanding warrants. Now that's kind of how this whole evening got started and officers really, yeah, they didn't notice, I guess, that Perry was impaired or intoxicated. So he sat in the front seat of a squad car alongside an officer and during the ride to jail his behavior started to change. He asked the officer to roll down a window because he was hot and had PTSD. I I was just going to say something because I know some of your listeners, we were just talking about how they can write in reviews. They're going to mention that this guy was sitting in the front seat and maybe that was weird. That does seem odd, but not every patrol car will have a cage in the back. And honestly, if you have a prisoner, you actually want them in the front seat if you don't have a cage because you don't want them behind you where they can choke you or something like that. So just in case somebody thought that sounded suspicious or anything, that's actually pretty normal. So I didn't want that to, I didn't want that to seem cloudy, you know, like maybe they did something. No, that's actually pretty normal. So I did think it was odd. I didn't even think to say anything. I'm glad you thought to bring that up. I probably would have asked later. I do remember thinking that was weird. It's just one of those things I saw 
it, well, and you know, you talked about my podcast for a minute. We always talk, we find like the super weird stuff. So I was like, okay, I know this can seem like a conspiracy thing. Like, oh, they sat him in the front seat, then he died. I'm like, no, that's actually fairly normal if there's no cage. So that's, okay. that's why. Well, that is really good to know. So as he's sitting there in the front seat, he starts fidgeting uncontrollably. And the police officer, of course, is like, "What? what's going on? Why are you moving? What are you doing? And he's just explaining, hey, I'm coming down off meth and I'm anxious. I don't like being handcuffed. And he's just telling the officer, like, it's fine. It's just me. You know, I'm just I got a lot going on. OK. And so. And mm-hmm. if you've never been handcuffed, it's not a pleasurable or fun experience. I could totally see just almost freaking out, you know, just kind of like feeling the same way because I'm kind of claustrophobic. Like I, I, the thought of being in, I've never had an MRI, but the thought of being in one absolutely freaks. I can't even think about it. Like it drives me crazy. So I almost think that might be how it feels like having, like being bound like that. If you're claustrophobic, being handcuffed and being thrown into the back seat oh of my a gosh. patrol car. You know, and each one's a little different. You know, the SUV styles might be a little bigger in the back seat. I just remember back in my day, we had Crown Vicks. They were not the roomiest vehicle in the back seat. So, yeah, I can see how that would make somebody that's, you know, coming down off meth a little antsy. That's a perfectly normal thing. And I can also see why the cop didn't react weird. Like, so far, everything you've talked about is a perfectly normal Trip to a and he's talking to him. They're they're having a conversation back and forth. Perry did request medical care when he got to jail because he was saying he needed the medication that he normally takes for his PTSD. So at intake, his body continued moving uncontrollably, having the involuntary jerks, requiring the intake officers to retrieve a chair for him to sit in while they searched him. One officer later placed his hands on Perry's shoulder in an apparent effort to steady him while another officer continued the pat down. Now throughout this time, Perry involuntarily kicked his legs, arched his back and threw his head back among other movements. One intake officer later described his speech as quote, barely coherent. Perry reported to the officers that he had taken methamphetamines, bath salts and heroin. It's quite a combination. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it breaks my heart. The area I live in is just absolutely, as a lot of areas are in the United States, there's an absolute epidemic for all sorts of drugs. Methamphetamines, absolutely. Heroin, it's not as bad as meth, but the bath salts, I don't know. I have no idea, but I just can sympathize with these people who've had really, you know, difficult times in their past, and they try to come up with ways to cope, you know, with that. And this, unfortunately, sometimes is the answer, you know, to try to cope with that opioids, heroin, those things are kind of like ways to check out and then they end up trying to take, you know, the opposite to try to come around. And it's just a horrible, horrible combination. Officer Schultz conducted Perry's classification and mental health screens at intake. The screens have 86 questions related to health and mental health. And Officer Schultz would later admit that on busy shifts, that it was his practice to answer no to all the questions on the forms and then later change them to yes. What? 
Is he saying, like, I'm just going to say no, and then if I need to go back and change him, yes, I will? I mean, is that what he's saying? Yeah, so basically, uh, when you are intaking somebody, what will happen is, you know, you'll have them stripped down, so you have to catalog all their clothes, so you have a wallet, you have $15 in cash, you have a pair of blue jeans, you have a pair of red Nikes, et cetera, okay? Then there is usually some kind of medical intake. Now, there is no standard, which maybe. That's something to talk about someday, but there is no standard. So one jail might ask you when you come in, are you having any chest pain, shortness of breath? And if you say no, that's your medical screen. That's it. There you go. Some places have no medical screen unless you ask for medical help. And then obviously this place went too far because you're asking police officers that have no medical training or ability to make a medical evaluation. You're having them do an 86 question medical questionnaire. Like, that's also ineffective. Like, somebody thinks that would cover their butt, but honestly, this is the type of situation it creates because now that officer basically was just writing no. And then if at any point you were like, oh, I'm having a headache, he would just go back and write complaints of headaches. That sounds terrible. And to an extent, it is terrible. But at the same time, it's an officer that is dealing with a guy. He's got other stuff to do. And you gave him an 86-question medical questionnaire and he honestly, that police officer has no medical training. If you tell him he's having blurry vision, he's just going to mark yes. It doesn't really mean much to him it, it, anyways. Yeah. This, so the significance is really it, lost it, on him. He's just sort of exactly. you know, like, okay, fine. Keep exactly. going, you know. Now, now I will tell you later in the story, there becomes a point where I'm like, even the police officer probably yes. should have. Yes. But I would, what I'm saying though, and this is not a complete defense of law enforcement. This is just saying this is the real facts. A person with no medical training and no medical knowledge or an evaluation skills are now being asked to do an 86 questionnaire. It's pointless. It's overkill. And that's what created the part of the situation because they likely weren't paying any more attention. If it had been a simple five you know, question medical form that said, if you have any of these five things called medical, that's an easy thing anybody can do. But an 86 thing that says, oh, by the way, you've already spent an hour talking to this person. Nobody wants to talk anymore. He just wants to go to the jail and go to sleep. You want to get back to, you know, work. That's why, you know, stuff like this happens. I, I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying that's usually what causes. Something well, like he this. did end up writing on the form. Yes. To signs of being under the influence of alcohol and drugs. He did put yes on that. Also current mental health needs because he mm -hmm. did ask for his medication. He said he had PTSD. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote no to all other questions, including signs of alcohol and drugs, withdrawals, sweating, needle marks, tremulousness, and hallucinations. So he marked no to that. So just signs that he was under the influence, but not necessarily signs that he was withdrawing from something so current substance abuse needs he did he put no on that current medical problem that nursing needs to be aware of like something like diabetes something like that no on that needs to be seen by a nurse under the influence of drugs and alcohol per process a sergeant signed off on the screening forms so he's saying yeah looks like he's under the influence yeah probably has some current mental health needs but no on all the other stuff mm-hmm so upon completion of the intake, multiple officers had assisted Perry to a padded high security cell. This occurred around 7.20 p.m. Perry continued to exhibit uncontrollable body movements, including clutching at his head and stomach. 
Approximately 20 minutes later, a group of four officers congregated outside Perry's cell and observed his condition. A deputy filmed the Army veteran's distress on her cell phone and recorded a horrific conversation between the officers while Perry was writhing in pain and screaming. And you can see this video. Unfortunately, it's out there online. Is it good that it's out there so people can see it and almost be shocked and horrified because otherwise maybe you wouldn't realize the things that can go on, you know? And they, these things can happen in any kind of an institution. It's not it's not only jails or prisons where these things happen. It's certainly, you know, especially in the climate law enforcement is in currently, you would really think that the officers would be a lot more cognizant of not only should they not be doing these things, but why they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And if they get caught, how bad it looks. And here we are talking about it on a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping they learn their lesson from that. Well, the officers apparently joked that Perry could be used as the county's new dare campaign to dissuade school-aged youth from substance use. They laughed that they could put Perry in a cage and wheel him to classrooms where his behavior could be observed as part of a, quote, show and tell. Deputy Shadron, the officer who recorded the video, quipped that there's no face shots. You You should go show this to his girlfriend like, hey, you love this? So this is the conversation that's happening among these police officers. This was a snide remark to when deputies and medical staff spoke with Perry's girlfriend about, and remember earlier we said that she had been arrested at the same time, about which drugs that he had taken. As she was being returned to her cell, she reportedly yelled to Perry that she loved him. So that's this is kind of why they are having this conversation. Like, oh, this is what you love. There is a company, as in most jails in the United States, there are companies that are contracted to provide medical care to the prisoners and inmates. Okay. So the company that was contracted to provide health care services to the inmates was Corizon Inc. That's the name of the company. So there was a nurse that was there that evening at eight, eight o'clock that worked for that company, obviously. Her name was Jana Rackley. She entered his cell to get a set of vitals on him. She didn't get a blood pressure. In her chart note, she recorded 45 minutes after she took his vitals. She wrote that Perry was visibly out of control, flopping all over, and that he was clearly out of breath and breathing rapidly. She noted that she planned to reassess him in an hour. This is the place in the story where as crass as it may sound, I can actually say I understand how this chain of events led up to this. Unfortunately, the things that we're about to start talking about is the part that I don't think that you have to be employed by anybody in healthcare to know like, hey, this is probably bad. But the very fact that a nurse who's employed for the sole purpose of doing medical screenings of prisoners failed to notice any of these is where I would say, okay, I feel it if this is hypothetically, because like you said, these are just the information we have. But based on this, it, it would seem like this is a very bad situation to be in. I can even with so but let's just think about this for a second. The uncontrollable movements and stuff, honestly, a person coming down off methamphetamines, that's not unusual. 
So that by itself, I wouldn't be too worried about. But when she specifically noted, you know, the rapid breathing and stuff like that, like at what point did they not expect them to do further medical examination? Like, why didn't they think that needed more investigation would be my first question. Yeah, absolutely. Well, over the next hour, deputies conducted six visual checks on Perry and nursing staff conducted one. Now, after 9 p.m., Rackley, that's the nurse we were talking about, conducted her second examination of Perry. She took Perry's vital signs, including his blood pressure, and appeared to document the readings on her arm. So this is something that people do, like write stuff. I've never understood, like I've never done anything like that. I feel like that's something like... Oh ER really? Too. Like, oh yeah. I've oh seen my nurses god. Don't write yeah, by the end of a shift, arm. by the end of a shift, from my elbow to my fingers, which is, there would be ink on gloves or hand skin. Oh yeah, that's a total. You don't have anything else to write on your palm, back, your yeah. hand, forearm. Everything's game. Yeah. yeah. So that's what she had done, and then, but this is odd. She took the time to write the vitals down but she didn't record her notes from the visit for two days. So it's almost like maybe she forgot to record them, but then after this event happened, she went back and was like, I better document those vitals, which it's still on her arm. I mean, yeah, anyway, it doesn't look good. Yeah. She noted that he was responding better, both physically and cognitively at that point. Okay. However, video from the jail conveyed a different story. The Army veterans' actions appeared to be slowing down. At 11.17, another nurse had come on duty, Nurse Valberg. She was the night shift nurse. She entered Perry's cell to examine him, and video showed him lying on his back and moving his mouth. A deputy then moved him into a seated position where he could not maintained that seated position on his own while he was slumped against the wall with his chin resting on his chest the nurse valberg performed her examination perry appeared to stop moving during valberg's examination and a deputy stated that he was quote foaming at the mouth so after a minute of trying to get perry's blood pressure using a manual cuff valberg left the cell perry remained motionless The deputies in the cell then moved Perry's body so that it was lying flat on the bench. Now, there's a reason that we know all of the actions because it's all on video. Valberg returned with an automated blood pressure cuff to attempt to take Perry's blood pressure. Valberg then began to rub his chest with one hand. Before this, a deputy asked Valberg if they should start CPR and get the AED. Perry did not move his body the entire time. No life-saving measures were initiated in the intervening two minutes and 10 seconds. I wonder if, and I didn't see the notes, do they mention when EMS was contacted? Is this when they contacted EMS? I'm hoping this is when they contacted EMS. But the second thing that strikes me as odd is why is the deputy the one saying, hey, shouldn't we get an AED and do CPR when a nurse is in the room doing vital signs? Like, why is he the one saying we need to do this? It just seems that seems very odd. I'm glad somebody said it. Let's be clear about that. I'm glad somebody finally made a decision. I just don't know why the medical personnel were not making the medical decisions. Okay, I want to. I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm going to okay. try to be as vague as do, I should. I shut up. Yes, jump uh, in here anytime. Okay, but okay. I'm going to try to be as vague as possible because I'm not. T- I, 
I'm not talking about any particular place, but because I've worked at several different hospitals. But I will say that as I have worked in several different hospitals over the past several years, in different capacities, different floors, also, also having been floated to different floors, there have been times when a clear emergent situation was happening and the staff and I'm talking about nurses and even physicians would be basically standing around and not doing not following the known nationally known internationally known protocols for what to do in certain situations and you know there's a handful of these situations when you're in the hospital there aren't a whole lot of things a whole lot of things that can happen to a patient that you're that's just going to make you just be like we got to do something like right now but there are a few of them and so some of those it's like you are supposed to know if somebody starts slurring their words and half of their face is drooping and they're you know one eye is larger than the other and their pupils and, and it's uh you know there's just certain things you're supposed to do and it's like you jump into action you, it's like i said at one point because this literally happened at and i'm gonna say where but it happened and later on i'm like i'm trying to be vague but i remember saying to someone look if you think somebody is having a stroke, you don't have to ask anyone. You unlock the bed and start rolling it. You're going to CT. You don't like you're not you don't have to have an order because you're going. You're going right now. Whoever is going, somebody watches your patient and you're going. And there what I don't understand though is in these hospitals, there these people are used to dealing with acutely ill patients and they still will not follow sometimes I'm not saying every time just saying I've seen it and it's kind of it baffles the mind but and I'm not trying to defend her clearly I've put her in this slot in the segment on the show for a reason I'm just saying this is a jail you know I mean this is you know, where these patients are supposed to be monitored, they are supposed to understand signs and symptoms of withdrawal or with overdose, okay, clearly. But I'm just saying, we probably could all use more training when it comes to emergent things that, you know, that can happen. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or family nurse practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. What I would say, though, having been an officer with no medical training, (laughs) is you tend to err on the side of caution, which is I'm not exactly sure what's wrong, but I know I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going to take you to the ER. Or we're going to call EMS. For instance, if I come up to a, a fender bender and someone says, oh, I wasn't wearing a seatbelt, I would automatically call 
EMS. I don't care if they're going 10 miles an hour. Because I was like, well, I'm not a doctor. You're not a doctor. I want somebody that's got medical training to come take a look at you. I know that's a safe or a not. It's an unsafe event. Okay. I guess what I would expect is that in the jail slash prison setting that they had some pretty good standard operating guidelines that were probably in place that said if a person's, you know, breathing rapidly, foaming from the mouth or becoming unresponsive, you should initiate, you know, measures to save this person's life. And so far up to this point, it seems like those, I don't want to say willfully, but they're clearly being missed. And I don't understand why, because they're even charting them. You know, the, the officer said she's foaming from the mouth. Like, so they clearly are aware of the symptoms. I just wonder at what point, and I agree, training is always a great thing. But there was, if they had an 86 question long medical, you know, questionnaire, I am sure there was an SOP in that jail that said if they start acting unresponsive, you call EMS. I definitely think that it probably has something to do with the culture. Especially in the hospital setting. I think that's 100% true. I think there's lots of nurses that have never called a code blue, not because they didn't think it was necessary, but if it wasn't a true code blue, they didn't want anybody to say something bad about them. But in the but in this jail setting, I understand not wanting to freak out, but you're not in the hospital. You don't have every resource in the world. That's also one of the reasons I was never afraid in hospitals. I was like, I'm literally in a hospital. You know, like this is where you come when you're having the emergency. What's the point of worrying? I'm already at the good place. You know, that's why I guess I never freaked out. But when you're in a jail, you know, you're on an island. You're away from all your resources. I don't understand. I would assume that they would have they would have tried to have been more proactive when they recognized symptoms were developing beyond just obvious intoxication. Like clearly I can forgive it up to a point, but then you start questioning why is it still happening? Well, why, why as a nurse, as a nurse would you witness this and then, you know, walk off, not say call EMS right now, you know, check for a pulse. Is he breathing? What, all of the measures that you and any resources do you have at your disposal there? I don't know what they had available, but anything that you have, if you have oxygen, put it on him, if you, whatever. But it just seemed like nothing. It was just like, it didn't even occur to, to assist. It was just like, it was as if it, there was just nothing happening. It's hard to understand. And I don't, it's because when you, it does appear very cold, it appears very cold. Yes. And I have to believe that she didn't think he was going to die. I mean, I, I, it's just that she just did. I don't know. I, it's, I think that's a very good assumption. I don't in any way get the sense that she was hoping this person would die. I think that there was just a very callous dismissal of what was going on around and that as pure my pure speculation just based off you know the information that we have for the case but i would say what other conclusion would there be you know, like i said i don't she didn't set out it does not appear in any way that there was any intention set out to harm him but she certainly doesn't appear to be doing anything to prevent yeah, it. I mean, is she not so, counting his respirations? Is she not seeing? He's barely, you know, there's no movement. He's He can't be taking air in. He's there. His chest isn't rising, you know. So when she failed to get a manual cuff pressure 
or that's what that's what again we don't know we're just reporting the events in the video but there's the manual cuff attempt and then there's the leave to come back with the automated cuff at any point you gotta read reach down and feel you know that pulse that radio pulse and if it's weak or thready you, you don't need anything else to know like okay we need to get immediate intervention. measures yeah yeah exactly and so but again, what was her level of training? What certifications did she have? Those are all very good questions. And, and perhaps the person that put her in that position should be answering some yes, questions as I, well. Yes, 100%. As to yeah. why she was there if she didn't have all that Right, because, so. and, you know, what actually ended up happening to him, they did put AED pads on him eventually. They were placed on his chest, and at 11.23, the, a deputy began chest compressions. Valberg instructed the deputy to stop compressions as she looked at the AED, and then she left the cell. Deputies began CPR that was later taken over by Clockamas Fire Department. When they arrived at 1130, Perry was then transported to the hospital where he was declared dead. So in 2011, the county contracted with Corizon to provide health care in the jail. The county and Corizon signed a renewal health services agreement in August of 2015 with a term through June 30th, 2018. So they had this whole agreement with this, you know, contract with this company and apparently there were several events supposedly that happened under their care and so from what i understand and again this is from the this is from court documents this is from articles but there have been at, supposedly at least six deaths six deaths in multiple states where this company provided medical care in jails and prisons. And that to me is significant. That to, because I feel like if you, you know, when you have staff, medical staff coming in to take care of these patients and you, if you show them these stories, show them stories of patients dying in their cells from an overdose or from withdrawal symptoms from literally withdrawing from drug or from not having their insulin and they're a diabetic or you know all sorts of things if i feel like if you really emphasize that with them and drive it home this wouldn't happen as much what do you think so one of the things that stands out to me is if the state of oregon had allowed this person to die nobody would bat an eye about how wrong it was and what things went wrong that caused this person's death. Like it would just be a given, you know, the state of Oregon did not protect this person. I don't think that just because you're a private entity and you are in the business of supplying medical care for a correctional facility that you should be allowed to make an agreement where you do not have to meet national standards of care for correctional health, which is the agreement Clackamas County and Corizon came to. I, I, if I, as the person working for the state of Oregon in this story, am not allowed to provide you less care, I should surely not be paying you as a private contractor to do less than I'm required to do. Like nobody thought that this was a problem or could not see the difficulty on the horizon that you are hiring a private entity and then paying them money 
to come in below standard of treatment. Well, at some point prior to 2016, Corizon did make a request to Clackamas County for more nursing staff to address workload issues with intake, but they did deny that request. And I'm not saying Clackamas County in this situation is wrong, but as you said, you were like, I think people need to know people have died in their care. And I agree. And not that, look, again, I'm not unrealistic. People are going to die. Crappy things are going to happen. Our job is to try and prevent noticeable, uncrappy things from becoming crappy. That's really, if you think about it, that's what we really do, okay? These people are being paid a lot of money, by the way, to provide the service. And then ostensibly people are dying under their care at a higher, well, it appears to be at a higher rate than the other people around them. So for instance, like I said, the state of Oregon would be held to a higher standard. These people should not be allowed to come in and provide lesser care at a higher price to the taxpayer, I guess is what I'm getting at. Like if you were going to choose to make this a private entity, you should have to come in at the same standard everybody else does. And I think, Looking at the fact that they didn't have to follow national standards of care perhaps could have contributed to something like this if all that stuff is true. Like I said, again, I'm not, you know, involved intimately in the medical, you know, case, but from the information we're seeing, I, that, that seems like a pretty obvious thing. You know, like I said before, you can forgive him saying, oh, I, I'm very lethargic. Well, he just said he was high on heroin. You know, I mean, that's a common sign of somebody with an opiate high. But the increased respirations and all the other stuff are actually contrary. That becomes like, why weren't they recognizing these things and, and doing this stuff? What is probably the most disturbing thing to me is to see how he was limp. And obviously, there's a, if he had respirations, they were minimal and was not able to hold himself up. And she could not get a blood pressure, a manual blood pressure on him and just still just walked away and didn't immediately try to offer aid and ask for them to go get help instead of her being the one to walk away. And it just, this nurse still has her license in the state of Oregon. So I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I don't know. I have been very vocal about not wanting to charge nurses or any healthcare professional criminally for f making a mistake or some, something happening while they're trying to do their job. And I've been very vocal about that. And I still, I do believe, I believe that. I also believe that there are people out there in healthcare, working in, they have taken an oath. They have agreed to take the responsibility to take care of other people. And then for whatever reason, they just don't take it seriously. And they make excuses to give subpar care and to neglect people and just really do a crappy job. And I don't think that's okay. And I don't think that those people should, at, they at least should have some sort of sanctions. They should at least have some sort of consequence for their inaction, for their negligence. But I, I think in some cases they should lose their license and just not because if you show complete a complete lack of empathy and indifference to a, to a person, another human being that is suffering in front of you, I'm sorry, but I don't think you should be a nurse. That's just me. I, well, it does certainly make one think, what are they doing? 
you know, like, why are you in the field if you can watch a person go unresponsive and not initiate yeah. action? And just be callous. I mean, I mean just completely... I mean, it's not like we don't see it all the time. I mean, I understand that people get jaded, people get burnout, all the words that, you know, I understand that. But I've also said this before. If you get to the point that you don't have any empathy for the people you're taking care of, get out. There are so many other things you can do. You don't have to work taking care of people in direct patient care. (laughs) Well, if nothing else, because I could say this, I feel burnout at times. I have been burnout at times. I think we've all been burnout, especially in healthcare. But at some point, even if it's not empathy, some basic... This is the right thing to do, if nothing else, so I don't integrity. Get yeah, yeah, I mean, Just doing the right thing because like you know said, it's the right if, thing if, to do. If doing the right thing because it's the right thing, and doing the right thing to cover your own butt, like those are two basic principles of any job, you know. Let alone one that is required to help you know prevent people from dying. And so that's kind of where I go to is like. Okay, okay, you, maybe she didn't have ACLS, or maybe she didn't have any other certifications, you know, for li- advanced life-saving, or who knows. But at the end of the day, you would think a person that is a nurse, that is charged with the health and safety of prisoners, is looking at a person that's going unresponsive. Something sh- could have happened. You know, that's what I'm getting at is, okay, we can forgive a lot of things, lack of training, lack of staff. There's a lot of things I can say this compounded or added to the problem. But at the end of the day, I still go, why wasn't the trigger pulled much sooner? Yeah, because I still believe that more education, more vigorous education, more aggressive education, whatever the word is you want to use, thorough education to really drive home I like robust. Robust. It's a great word. I mean, really, <laughs> to help drive home the importance of what you're doing and the things that can go wrong. It is. I just feel like well, there's just. I'll it's t- so important to do. I'll that. tell you right now, it's money. Well, yeah. It's I, money. It's, well, yeah. It takes money. Mm-hmm. It takes money to do that. And this is one of the things as a former police officer that absolutely drives me insane is like I see blue line stickers everywhere now and I know 99% of them weren't police officers so that one is annoying but two is almost every person that says they support police you can go okay well we need to raise your taxes so that we can get more training and better equipment and give the officers a raise so then we can retain you know more talented you know people oh no 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 I like cops so that hopefully they won't give me a ticket but I don't like cops enough to actually give them the resources that they need. That's where your robust and vigorous training is. It's in money that Clackamas County likely didn't get and voters wouldn't give them. So at the end of the day, you know, the people of Clackamas County probably need to ask some questions. Yeah, about, and Horizon should be on the hook for the education part, I think. If nothing else, for their own yes. people. Like, they can't answer for Clackamas County. I can go with that. But their own staff. And like I said, they're being paid a lot of money to provide this care. So, yeah, I don't think that they have an excuse either. But I, I would say if any of the listeners out there, and you have a lot of listeners, so I'm glad that they're hearing this. But that's what I want you as the listener to think about is when you ask yourself, why didn't the police in this case, but in any case, 
why didn't they have that extra you know training or why didn't they have that extra st- money money that people don't want to give them because it's from tax dollars and so like I said, there's a lot of cops that are like, no, we want more training. We want more equipment. There's more nurses that want more training, more equipment, but it's a money, it's a money issue. So that's where your vigorous and robust training is. If you want it, it's there. You just got to pay for it. I think that there, I know people hate this, but I do think that this comes down to regulations. You have to force these companies to do this because they're not going to do it. I don't know if it's CMS or Joint Commission or whoever it is that is governing this, these people, which I doubt CMS is the way, would be the one, I don't know, because the county, they have to pay for medical care, right? It's not like your insurance, CMS, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, they're not paying for them while they're in in the jail. That's right. Yeah, it's on the county. The city, the county, and the mm-hmm. state are the one that's yeah. paying for it. Not those, not that. Yeah. So. So, but I do think that somehow some, someone needs to put some, that's interesting, you know, when you think about that, because where would the law come from? It would come from the state and the state is not going to want to, they're not going to want to create a law. You know, you're not going to, you're, the people who are running our state, I guess, are they going to want to create a law? Because I mean, they're they're all connected. I mean, not that I'm a conspiracy well, so, theorist or anything, but I'm just no, I feel like no, you know. No, I get what you're saying, but this is the cycle. We've done this before in America. I, actually, this happened in America before, uh, where we have created laws and regulations to say you have to have these things in place. And then over time, people start going, well, everything's safe now. Why do we have this law? Like, this isn't a problem. So then we get rid of the regulation. And then the problem starts to creep back. And then like someone's like, hey, we should make a law that we shouldn't be able to do this. And in 10 years from now, we'll go, well, this isn't a problem. So we can get rid of this law. Yeah. And it'll just keep. Yeah. That's how regulation, you know, really, if you look at and it's not just America. I don't want to make it seem like that. But that's how regulations tend to go in general. They also make (laughs) things just sort of like a checklist type of thing, like the yearly education that you have to do, where you watch all of those modules. Those are all mandated education that you're just clicking through. So I don't know. Because you don't actually learn anything. I think if we were actually learning something, I don't think it's the act of learning something that anyone's against. I think it's the act of being forced into answering questions that are repetitive and we know aren't going to actually provide any insight, that gets frustrating. Well, what I hope so. is that by us doing the podcasts that we do, you know, coming on here and talking about these things, these real life things that happen, people on social media, they're, you know, Nurse Erica and Jessica Seitz and APR and Beauty, these people that are that go on social media and they talk about these real life things that happen and get these, get the message out there. At the very least, I would hope that that would help maybe another nurse who is in this setting at some point to stop, you know, stop what they're doing and think about their actions. Maybe it would help them. I don't know. Get out of the profession. If you don't want, if that's, if you don't want to take care of people, don't take care of people. You know, that's, that's what I would hope. Like just, if you don't have, if you don't care anything about that, if you look at an inmate at a, at a jail and think you got yourself here, you don't, you're you're not a real you're not a whole human being you are not worthy of me helping you don't be a nurse in a jail or prison that's what i say you know that's what i say but then again who's world's going to do the job you know because we're already short-staffed everywhere as it is everywhere short-staffed everyone's stressed out it's but 
it, I guess it just comes back, but like we said before, integrity. Like, if you're going to do a Whatever job, job. Whatever job. I don't care if it's, you know, if you're a janitor, then I think if you're going to be mopping the floors, then you should mop the floors to the best you can. I'm not saying you have to be happy about it, but you should be doing your job. I guess I just feel like that about anything. But in particular, when you are in a position such as nursing or a medical provider where you have a certification because people have a higher expectation of trust and your ability to do your job and it's necessary for you to be able to do it, then don't be shocked when people hold you to that higher standard. I don't think any of the medical professionals in this story should be shocked that there's legal action happening when you read when you read some of the stuff that's going on. So I, again, it just goes back to some basic integrity in, in doing your job. Is how uh, the way I'm looking at it. Like I said, I can excuse a lot of this stuff based off the symptoms up until about 8 p.m. And then I start going, well, why did this happen? And then happen repeatedly. So I have to tell you guys about an experience I had with a nursing student. So, you know, I've been doing travel nursing. Well, this hospital where I'm at has a lot of LPN students doing their clinicals there. So one of them was following me around one day and she noticed my stethoscope. And of course, Y'all know the Echo Technology Company that sponsors our podcast. They teamed up with Littman to make the stethoscopes, to beat all stethoscopes, the 3M Littman Core Digital Stethoscope. And this is the one that I use now. So she said, oh my gosh, I've been wanting to try one of those. So of course I let her use it. And she just could not stop talking about it for the rest of the shift. It was so cute. She was like, you know, I can't hear anything with my normal stethoscope because I have tinnitus. And so she was so excited because she could actually hear what heart sounds were supposed to sound like. She said, I'm going to ask for one of these for graduation. And I was like, yeah, you definitely should. So just so you know, the echo technology that makes the stethoscope so amazing. Uh, you can enable it with a flip of a switch. You can turn it on and off. It has active noise cancellation up to 40 times amplification, wireless auscultation using Bluetooth technology. It connects with Echo's free app and software so that you can visualize, record, share, live stream, analyze heart sounds, lung sounds, and whatever body sounds you want to listen to. So you can go to echohealth.com and use the promo code GNBN to get $50 off your order. And that's Echo is spelled E-K-O, by the way. So it's echohealth.com and use the GNBN promo code to get $50 off your order. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house. So it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and well, fill guys, out a I guess we can get started on our good doctor story. We have a doctor that's actually with us this week. We don't always get to have the subject of our good portion of our podcast, and it's always exciting when we do. And I'm very excited to get to tell you about this person and the research that he's done. It is really amazing. And I think you guys are going to just be really fascinated by him and the book that he's written. This is Dr. Ardavan Asley. He's a board certified spine surgeon who received his undergraduate education 
education at the University of California, Berkeley, where he double majored in physiology and genetics, and he earned his MD from New York Medical College, completed his residency at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City while working with some of the world's most renowned scoliosis surgeons. He received his spine surgery fellowship training at a little a little school called Harvard University. In addition to his private practice, Dr. Asley has been active in researching and developing cutting-edge treatments for osteoporotic and aging spines. He lives in Sacramento. So I am going to welcome him, and then Tom and Ben are going to kind of take over the interview. Welcome, Dr. Asley. Thank you very much for having me. So, Dr. Asley, we got to talk a little bit before the show. First of all, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. We told people about your background, but really the book started off on some things you were noticing going wrong in spine surgeries, and that just wasn't getting corrected. And it started with the pedicle screw. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, so what made you notice it? What was going wrong with it? And like, how did this all start? Uh, very well. It's actually to understand it, we got to go back a little bit in time to explain what these pedicle screws are. You know, spine is a mechanical device. It's a bunch of bones that are stacked up on top of each other and separated by these cartilage. We call them discs. Sometimes when the there's an injury accident or so. The disc gets injured and causes pain. So the treatment for that is to remove the disc and turn the two bones into one bone with a surgery we call a fusion surgery. So we started doing these surgeries, let's say, in 70s and 80s. The problem with this surgery is that once you take the disc out and what you do, you put some bone graft between the two bones, and you're hoping that this bone graft will turn into one bone. Well, unfortunately, in about 25% of the surgeries, so 75% healed very well, but 25%, this bone graft didn't turn into a solid bone, and we ended up what we call a non-union. So as Spine surgery is a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. Orthopedic surgery, like I became orthopedic surgeon first, and then I did a fellowship in spine surgery, which was one year, and I started practicing as a spine surgeon. So from orthopedic surgery, treating fractures, we knew that the best way of healing the two bones together is to immobilize them together. Right around 1960s, a German team, Swiss-German team, came up with the idea that we screws and plates into the two fracture ends, hold them together, and immobilize them with plates and screws. We call that AO technique, Angrestero osteosynthetica. We call it a rigid fixation. So we, and after that, we had great success treating fractures in long bones like arm and leg. Well, we had the success, so we said, okay, we got to do similar thing to spine. Right around 1985, two surgeons in France, they were able to somehow find the anatomy that they can insert large screw, it's like a really big bolt, from back to the front into the vertebral body. And the vertebral vertebra is a basically spine bone, we call it vertebrae. So you could insert these large screws from back to front, one on each side. And these screws have a tulip that can accept a rod. So if you want to fuse, let's say, three bones, two bones, three bones, four bones, you put screws in consecutive bones 
and they all have a tulip and the tulips line up and you put a rod and basically you connect these screws together and you immobilize that section. So when these screws came out, it got presented in 1985 to American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Once we saw that, we were like, aha, uh -huh, this is what we've been waiting for. So from that point on, we started using these screws. Problem is that initially, right around early 1990s, we did not have very good results. There were actually at some point, there were about 7,000 lawsuits against the manufacturer of these screws, a company called Software Organic, which became Medtronic, and another company. So, and at this point, the spine surgery was divided because spine surgery is a subspecialty of neurosurgery and orthopedic surgery. So orthopedic surgeons were saying, oh, we got to use these screws. They're great. But the neurosurgeons were saying, well, what are you guys doing here? So when all of this was going on, and the lawyers, not only they sued the manufacturer, but actually they sued the doctors too. They sued, at some point, there were about 500 lawsuits against North, North American Spine Society and American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So not only they sued the manufacturer, but they sued the doctors too. So as this was going on, and there was a Senate investigation at this time to use of these screws, a doctor named Dr. Zdeblik from Wisconsin, he's the head of orthopedic or orthopedic spine division in the University of Wisconsin right now. He published a paper saying that these screws work beautifully. They are absolutely awesome. They increase fusion rate and they improve outcome. So this paper got published in 1993 in Spine Journal. Once this paper got published, two things happened. One, spine surgeons started saying like, aha, see, we knew this was good. So the use of screws skyrocketed and the use of screws became standard of care. And two, the second thing happened is that these lawsuits disappeared for lack of evidence. And actually this paper was a good chunk of it. Everybody kept pointing to this paper. So we started using these screws. Then... I came along, and we know this, that the problem is that around late 1990s and early 2000s, six paper came out, six papers, multinational, multi-center. They looked at these screws and they evaluated them. All six, they said that these screws don't work. They do not increase fusion rate and they do not improve outcome. If anything, they cause increased operation time, and increased blood loss. So once we saw that, we didn't know what to do with it. And we kept going, we kept continuing. Well, so by... I, yes. I was going to ask real quick, Doc. So in a case like this, where you have now mounting evidence that the original assertion is incorrect, do you go back and say, okay, guy, explain how you came to this conclusion? Or is that what we're getting to here coming up? <laughs> We're getting to that. All yes, right, that's, I jumped that's ahead. Exactly. Sorry about that, now, that's okay. That's okay. I'm glad that you said that. That's exactly what we're getting into. So right around, so I finished my training in 2002. So by the time I finished my training, pedicle screws has had a significant hold in the world of spine surgery. They were standard of care. Every time you got the fusion, you use the screws. And at this point, neurosurgeons gave up a fight and neurosurgeons started learning how to put the screws in. Mm -hmm. 
So by the time I finished my training in 2002, neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons were using these screws. So the whole 2010s, there was no issue. All the lawsuit has gone back. We told ourselves that these screws work great because we know the screws work great in spite of those evidence, which I'm going to get back to. And then there was no problem. So right around 2013, I started my research and development about osteoporotic vertebrae. So what happens is this. Vertebrae, backbone, spine bone, is not a solid block of like a wood or like a cement. It's actually, you can see it as a shoebox. The outside shell is a very solid bone we call the cortical bone. But the inside bone is a spongy bone we call a cancellous bone. So we knew right around 2010s, 2013s, with the aging population, we're having problems with these screws. They keep pulling out. We have to do the surgery over and over and over and over. So what was going on? And that was the time I started telling myself that I have to invent a device. I have to work on this. Because in the past, they tried to make the screws better. They had screws that would open up like a flower. There were screws that you can shoot a glue right through the middle of it, that the glue would come out like spikes. But none of these really caused any like wow factor. So I started my research and development. And I got to be very open about research and development because there's an issue with it that I'll explain later. So I came up with a device that is a flat plate that sits against the lamina and uses composite straps to wrap around the lamina. Lamina is part of the bone in the back of the vertebrae that forms the roof of the spinal canal. So it's a flat bone. It's one of the strongest bones in the body. So I developed this device that uses composite straps. These straps are stronger than same size steel cable. They call it Dyneema. You can check it out. It's very strong material. It's a type of a special plastic. In Australia, they don't use steel winches anymore. They're all Dyneema because they're much stronger. Mm. So I use these straps to wrap around the lamina. So my device was able to hold on to the lamina but using cortical bone as opposed to weak bone. I presented my device to Congress of Neurology in 2015, and I won the innovation showcase. That means that my device got presented to the world of neurosurgery, and I got a great, great response. Some of the surgeons were saying, is it available now? So anyways, so at, but at that time, my device was in a prototype stage. So as I was developing my device, I start learning biomechanics of spine better and better and better. And I hit a problem with my device. To solve that problem, I said, well, let me go back to the screws and see how did they deal with that problem. That's when I started doing research and going into the literature and to try to find out, try to better my device. What I found out was scary. I mean, just flat out scary. I found out that majority of the, not just majority, great majority of the papers that has been published say that this stuff doesn't work. And I actually confronted those professors and they said, yeah, we know, we haven't been able to show. And they all said the same thing to me. They said, we understand, we know that we have not been able to show that these screws work with research, but we will in the future. Don't worry about it. That's exactly 
what I got from them. Wow. From every one of them. So I said, right. So I said, wait a minute. There's a paper that everybody refers to, that paper in 1993. Let's do a little bit more research about that, see what's going on with this paper. And what I found out at that time was flat out scary. One thing is that this paper in 1993 by Dr. Zdevlik was published by him only. There were no other co-authors. It was his work, his patients only. And listen to this. It was published in 1993 as a preliminary report. I spent two years looking for the final report. I was in conference, a spine conference in 2016, and I talked to one of these leaders of the field. I said, where is this final report? He said, it doesn't exist. That study was abandoned in the middle. It was never finished. Wow. I was like, oh my God, wait, just when you think things cannot get worse, it gets 10 times worse. So go back to that history. So in 1993, this paper gets published. In 19, by 1996, 1997, these lawsuits start disappearing. But one other important thing happened. Dr. Zedevlik started getting paid from the company that was manufacturing these screws. And he stated that he got paid because of something that he invented. I've seen his invention, and I'm not impressed. But he got paid from that. By the time, from 1997 to 2004, he got paid $34 million from that company. And I was like, oh my God, what is this all about? And this is all in the news. I don't have an investigative person that goes investigate. No, I just do Google. These are all in the Google. These are all in the news articles. Wall Street Journal, New York Post, these are all in there. So this is, there's something else happened that's just ferociously bad. So the same company, Medtronic, put him in charge of another put Dr. Zedevli in charge of another study, very important study. This study was about a bone graft substitute we call BMP. Long story short, this time, Dr. Zedevli got caught falsifying his results. It is crazy. As a matter of fact, this is not me saying it. This is not Wall Street Journal saying This is not New York Post. This is United States Senate came to this com conclusion. There was an investigation by United States Senate. United States Senate concluded that paper in 2005 was not even written by Dr. Zedevlik, was actually written by the company, and he just put his signature on it. Wow. Is that crazy? So, so we're starting to see, obviously, some of the initial breakdown. And so one of the questions, though, when he put forward this preliminary report, was there any peer review prior to publishing? Or since it was a preliminary, did they just go ahead and put it out into the journal? You know, I mean, let me tell you this. I cannot, I have talked to many lawyers in terms of what I can say, what I cannot say. <laughs> okay. Something that, yeah, because something, I cannot accuse somebody of something, but I'm actually, as a person, I'm free to give my opinion. I'm going to straight, just state some facts. Dr. Zedeblik finished his training in 1989. This is something that you can see in his bio. He finished his, he finished his training in 1989, not in Wisconsin, somewhere else. I don't know where he did it, but he, oh, Johns Hopkins, I think. He did it, he did this training in, in Johns Hopkins in 1989. 
So he started his practice in summer of 1989 in Wisconsin. That paper came out in 19, summer of 1993. Now, when you write a paper, you don't call up the, the magazine and they just put it up right away. No, it has to go through some process. So it takes about, let's say, even if they tell you that, yes, we have accepted for pu- publication, they don't publish it in the next issue. They publish it like in six issues from now, like six months from now. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so let's go backwards. Say it was published in 1993. Let's say it took six months, which is very fast. It goes through review and it gets accepted for publication. Well, you just don't publish a paper. You have to have a year of follow-up. So the last patient that you did surgery, you have to follow that one patient, the last patient, for at least a year. So let's say that follow-up goes all the way to all of 1992. So that tells you that within 1990 and 1991, he did all this research within the first two years of his practice. It doesn't make sense. You just didn't have enough time to do a publish a paper that has become the quintessential anchor of an entire specialty. And not only that, he didn't even finish this. This study was never finished. It was abandoned in the middle. So in my book, I do point out to all these facts. And I do say that as spine surgeons, I need answers. If this study was a, you know, not an important study, I would not care. But because it's the only paper that says that these screws work, and every time I go to conferences, surgeons, spine surgeons reference this paper, then I need to know why it wasn't finished, what was happening that got published as a preliminary report. I don't see a lot of preliminary reports. The only time I see preliminary reports is in the case that we're waiting, there's something going on, we're waiting for the results, you know. So what was happening in 1993 that this was published as a preliminary report and then was never finished? Two, did this disappearance of lawsuits coincide with Dr. Zedevlik getting paid? Because it's awfully suspicious that, you know, he got this, all this amount of money as the lawsuits were going away. It's just, it just doesn't pass the muster test. Now, here's the interesting part. So I went and I actually presented this very fact. When I tell you that, you know, I'm at the podcast, I talk about my book, I wrote the book, people might say, well, did you talk to your peers? Did you present it to your professors? Did you present to the leaders of the field? Absolutely. I've gotten up in the meetings. I've gotten up in the meetings in front of 600 spine surgeons, 1,000 spine surgeons, and I've said this over and over, that we, all these evidence shows that the screws don't work. And I get the same answer from all the professors. We know that we haven't been able to show that these work, but we will in the future. That's all they say. And it's mind-boggling. So my question then, if you have an answer for it, is why do they continue to use the screws if the mounting evidence is showing that they're ineffective? And here it comes. That's exactly what I was going to get into. That is the same question that I asked myself for three years, for three years, every time I would come to these leaders of the field and I questioned the pedicle screw, they wanted to 
kill me. They just wanted to rip me apart. I swear to God. It's like it defies logic. I mean, I was like, why? what is happening? Why is this happening? I mean, as a scientist, you got to be open-minded to all sorts of possibility. You cannot just brush off a possibility just because you don't like that answer. You got to be open-minded. That's the only way we can progress. So I couldn't really answer that question. If you tell any orthopedic spine surgeon that these screws might not work, they want to kill, they want to just tear you apart. It's like just insulting them. So I had to answer that question, why? And after three years of questioning research and looking at the literature and talking to surgeons, I eventually found the answer. And this is the answer. As orthopedic surgeons, first we become orthopedic surgeons. As orthopedic surgeons, we deal with fractures. When we deal with the fractures, we learn that the screw is the answer to every problem. Every time you want to heal the bone, you use a screw. This gets hammered in our head for five years that the answer to any problem is a screw. Well, we get trained, we become orthopedic surgeons, then we become spine surgeons. So we apply everything that we learned in the world of spine surgery to spine. And that's what's been happening. And that's exactly what my book is all about. What my book is all about and says that it's not like a big controversy. It's not this all of our, all of us, me included, leaders of the field has sold our specialty to the highest bidder to these manufacturing companies. It's not that. Problem is spine surgery from the beginning was never meant to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. What we learned and what we applied to spine surgery from orthopedic surgery, we should have never done that. Spine surgery is too complex to be a subspecialty of orthopedic surgery. As a matter of fact, in my book, I explained that if you want to go from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery, you got to unlearn what you learned and relearn new techniques. The way I explain it is this. Let's say Newtonian physics. Newtonian physics. If you want to build a building, you can use that using Newtonian physics, Newtonian principles. But if you want to build a laser or send a rocket to the moon, you have to use quantum physics. You have to use a completely different medium and language. That's how... That's what we should do. We should just forget about what we learned in orthopedic surgery and we develop new principles and and laws for spine surgery. For example, I'll give you an example. This is very important for my patients to understand. The concept of rigid fixation that we carried over from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery, the concept of rigid fixation works very well in orthopedic surgery for one important reason. Why? Let's say you have a fracture in the arm and the leg that you fix it with screws and rod, but you're not too happy. It's kind of a weak. Then you have the option of eliminating gravity. So in the arm, of course, you have a sling. In the leg, you put, a, you put the patient on crutches. Well, in spine surgery, you cannot eliminate gravity. You cannot put the patient on a sling. You cannot suspend him in the air for three, four months. So you cannot eliminate the gravity. That means that whatever the device you have, 
has to somehow counter these gravitational forces. Every time you get up, you're stressing that. Every time you bend forward a little bit, you stress that construct. Every time you might be falling, you stress. So the concept is this. It's no different than building a building in an earthquake zone. Like in San Francisco, when you build a building, you don't make it stiff. We've done that, and it doesn't work very well. So what you do, you build the building, and you make it on the rollers and make it so it can actually twist and dissipate that energy. Same concept needs to be applied to spinal instruments. I call it, you know, you talk about rigid fixation. I call this new breed of instrumentation devices reactive rigid fixation. So it's not flexible fixation. It's not a rigid fixation, but it's a reactive rigid fixation. So it should be a device that actually can give a little bit. So if the patient kind of falls down or something like twists, you know, wrong way, the screws don't cut out and everything fail. It could actually bend a little bit, dissipate the energy and go back to its original position. So that way you don't have like just this crazy huge screws coming off and the whole thing is just gone basically so that is the concept that i say when we transition from orthopedic surgery to spine surgery our whole mindset must change completely as a matter of fact i explained in my book is that you know uh, spines i mean orthopedic surgery i hate to say this but i have to say to catch people's attention orthopedic surgery has turned spine surgery into the biggest scam in the history of medicine, according to our literature. Neurosurgery, you were saying, is also has a subspecialty of spine surgery, and they do similar surgeries. And there's, there's ones that orthopedics do. So if a neurosurgeon is going, a neurosurgeon I know will sometimes say, oh, I can't do this one, I've got to send it over. But there's ones that they do. You're saying take it away from the neurosurgeons and the orthosurgeons and have a whole specialty that's just about the spine. Is that what you're saying? Correct. Correct. And this is the interesting part. I I kind of don't want to say this, but I have to say it. This is a very important concept. Whatever I said today, when I say this to an orthopedic surgeon, they want to kill me. But when I say this to a neurosurgeon, they totally understand it. And they're like, yeah, you're right. I mean, this is just such a sharp division between philosophy of orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery that it's just, it's just crazy. And that's what was one of the reasons that I had to answer. I'm like, why such a, you know, orthopedic surgeons, they are just sold out on rigid concept of rigid fixation. They're sold out on the fact that the screw is as good as it's gonna get. And one of the things that that I explained in my book is that, you know, I went through a lot of training. Every time I was in training, presenting a paper in like journal club or so, they would come in, my professors would just tear the, you know, study into pieces. Oh, they didn't do this, they didn't account for this, they did some of the award-winning papers. Not one time I've seen that the preliminary report would be accepted as a scientific criteria of being complete. But in the world of surgery, spine surgery, we've done that. We just said, hey, preliminary report, Dr. Zedell, that's all we need. It's just defines it's a pre- preliminary report from one surgeon. Correct. From his own 
his own practice. Correct. That he clearly benefited from financially eventually. So yeah, well, it is definitely. Well, and some of this seems, well, I guess to the family nurse practitioner, some of it seems like, I guess I understand because, you know, when you talk about screws and orthopedics is the base of your training and screws Correct. are what you guys use. Well, femur doesn't have to flex. You know, so you Correct. crush a full, you crush a femur. Guess what? I can bolt that thing back together every which way, and it don't matter because it don't got to move. But your spine does, and so I can see Correct. a lot of where the issues you've been talking about, how they can develop, and how they can continually fester is what it seems like. Correct. Yes. Let me explain to you something. When I say that it took me three to four years to answer that question. It wasn't just like, you know, hey, I got to think about it. What do you think? You know, and stuff. I actually, this is what happened. I actually had to innovate. And this is how it went. When we started spine surgery, nobody ever sat down and said, let's study the biomechanics of spine. We all know that even in orthopedic surgery, to way to understand it and treat a fracture, you got to understand is biomechanics. What are the forces? What are the deforming forces? You study, okay, there are the insertion of these muscles. This is what's going to do. This is what, how it's going to deform. Therefore, we got to put a plate or a device that counters that force. When it came to spine surgery, we never did that. I've been to many conferences. And every time I go to a lecture that talks about biomechanics, they talk about the screw, pitch, the thread, the length, the core. These are completely unrelated to the spine. So when I did my research and development, when I looked at the literature, I saw that there's nobody ever sat down and said, what are the deforming forces? What are we trying? What forces are we trying to stop with this instrumentation? And that's what I eventually tried to do and it's explained in my book. And this is how it goes. I was explaining this to one of my friends and he looked at me and said, this is like fifth grade physics. You know, this is like very simple. What are you talking about? I said, it's a fifth grade physics after you decipher the whole thing. But it is so complex that it needs to be deciphered. And this is how it goes. I'm going to show you, of course, our listeners, they can't see this, but right now I'm just pointing to a model of a spine that has, it's a glass model that has screws that are inserted. So if you look to the motion of the vertebrae, what you're doing with screws, you're trying to immobilize the spine, right? So what is the motion? What is the way that this bone moves? You know, it doesn't move, it doesn't slide back and forth. It doesn't go up and down. How does it move? It rotates. Every bone, every vertebrae rotates uh, relative to the bone below. And then when they all rotate, that's how the spine kind of flex forward. So the motion is rotation, correct? Okay. So when you put the screw this way, guess what's going to happen? The screw, well, yeah, the screw has to deal with the rotational motion. Well, the screw is not made to stop rotational motion. I was seven years old. I swear to God, I was seven years old, or maybe even six, when I realized that if you want to take a screw out, you don't yank on it. You toggle it, and then it will come out easier. And that's what's happening 
inside the spine. You put the screw in and you tell it to stop toggle. And not only that, you don't even give him a cortical bone, you give him a cancellous bone. So you tell the screw to do something that's not made for. You give it nothing but the spongy bone. When the papers come back and say it doesn't work, you don't want to listen to it. You want, because your brain is brainwashed with the knowledge that screw is the answer to everything. Hmm. I'm not kidding you. It's it's just crazy. Well, and do you feel with your experience in medicine that this is a common issue in medicine, not just in spinal surgery? Like far too often in healthcare, do we tend to latch onto something and forsake the new stuff coming out for the act of forsaking it because it's new? We want to stick with what we know. Is this something that you've seen before? And do you anticipate in your field it improving? Like, do you think spinal surgeons are finally going to go, I see the light, you know, or do you think they're right. like the rest of us and you guys are just like, nah, we're going to keep our head buried in the sand. That's where we like it. It's warm. So I, right. I have to answer that question in multiple layers. And one is this, as I explained, between the neurosurgeons and the orthopedic surgeons, it's the orthopedic surgeons that I can't get through to them. Neurosurgeons are very well accepted. As a matter of fact, my device won the innovation showcase in Congress of Neurological Surgeons. I presented my device to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, which is an orthopedic-based thing, and they didn't even, didn't even consider it. That, that just tells you right there. So, and it's not just that. When I show these, to an orthopedic surgeon, and I say that my device uses a strap and it's stronger than a screw. They look at me and it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, is that a, that's like the dumbest thing we've ever heard. You're saying that your device that uses a strap is as strong as a screw? That's what they tell me. I swear to God, they cannot just go back. And my argument is very simple. I say, look, you can make the screw as strong as it can hold this building. But if you put it into junk, you got junk. You know, my device may be as not as strong as a screw, but it's hold on to the part of the vertebrae that as one of the strongest bones in the body. The neurosurgeons can understand, orthopedic surgeons can So that's one layer of what I explained. So even in the world of spine surgery, there's that dichotomy between neurosurgeons and orthopedic surgeons. Two, when I started my research and development, somebody gave me an advice. And it's nothing bad, you know, to be honest, I'm not bad mouthing my own kind, you know, the orthopedic surgeon. Because after all, we are very, you know, we are successful, you know, to get into orthopedic surgery or neurosurgery, you gotta do very well in medical school. To get into medical school, you gotta do very well in college. To get into those colleges, you gotta do very well in high school. So we are, you know, we are the very successful students. So he told me, he said, your problem is gonna be this. Neurosurgeons or spine surgeons' attitude is that if I did, if I'm not the one that invented this, then it must be junk. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that sounds like something I can so, hear a neurosurgeon saying. Yeah, so, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> but there's another layer that I want to discuss it with you, and this happens in medicine all the time. A company comes up with a product. They approach a surgeon that's always a very famous. Surgeon. They're not going to approach some not famous surgeons. They want famous surgeons. So they approach a famous surgeon. Well, guess what? At that point, that famous surgeon starts writing articles that are favorable to that product. And then when we use it, and then 10 years later, we find that the product didn't work, 
Nobody says anything. They just move on to the next product. And in my book, I say that, wait a minute, there should be some accountability. The CEO of that company, they have one and one goal only, to make money for the, pro- for the company. That's it. Yeah. So the CEO does this and gets partnered, bring a product into the thing. And after 10 years that we find out that this product didn't work, nobody, that CEO is somewhere in south of France and nobody asks him a question. So I would say that there should be some sort of accountability. Somebody has to tell that guy who published paper that was favorable and nobody can duplicate those results. Somebody has to tell him, come back here. What happened there? I mean, if you are a professor, if you are a scientist, you got to be impartial. And, you know, it's just unfortunate. I got to say that I'm just embarrassed that we have not done that job. There was a segment. If you go to YouTube, if you go to YouTube and type in CNN Zdeblik, you would see a segment that actually CNN was looking for Dr. Zdeblik to ask him some questions. And there was a doctor named Dr. Carragy, who is the head of spine surgery in Stanford. And they talked to him. And he said that, you know, we didn't live up to our expectations. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be very shocking, okay? This is very shocking when I saw it. So when I say all of these things, it's not just me. A good chunk of the spine surgeons actually agree with me. They just don't know what is happening and what the answer is. About 2020, February, March of 2020, I walked into my office. I get the spine journal. This time, it caught the first article, caught my attention. And the title was this. Undisclosed conflict of interest is prevalent in spine literature. This is our journal. What does that mean? That means our data is tainted. That's our journalists saying. It's just crazy. I mean, I just can't believe that we have to deal with this. And nobody says anything. Well, it seems like one person has said something. Well, when I found (laughs) that out, well, let me tell you. I mean, I went through five years, five years to ask that question to myself. One thing, my wife was very unhappy for me to write this book. She was telling me that, you know, you have a good practice. We have a good life. You can just ruin it with this book. And as a matter of fact, I asked myself for five years. I said, world of spine surgery went through a great trauma in 1990s. I mean, just bad trauma, bad reputation, lawsuits, this and that. You know, with this book, I'm going to be opening those old wounds. Am I doing the right thing? Am I, you know, what am I doing here? Is it the right thing? Because after all, it's all for the patient. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about Dr. Zedeblik. It's about patients. It's about the spine surgery as a scientific medical specialty. And I told myself, I said, this just can't happen. You just can't have an unfinished preliminary report be the quintessential anchor of a specialty done by somebody who has been proven by United States Senate that 
His work is yeah. tainted. I mean, you just can't go on like that. So no, Dr. Hasley, you've mentioned your book several times, and I don't think we've actually said the name of it. We're wrapping up the interview here. So what can you tell us the name of your book and where all they can find it at? Yes, the name of the book is Corporate Spine. Uh, Corporate Spine. Very simple. And they can, you know, it's available at Amazon. It's not very expensive, only $25. And you can get it in a few days. When I wrote this book, of course, I wanted to bring up this notion that, you know, the world of spine surgery, you know, all the evidence is just, you know, uh, you know, I have to go back and say, you know, uh, about the state of world of spine surgery. I, in my book, I say that, look, there's one paper that says it works. Six papers says it doesn't work. And the leaders of the field said, yes, we understand that we haven't been able to show that the screws work, but we will in the future. And my argument to them is that every time you fail to show that these screws work, you've actually shown that they didn't work. These are not two separate events. So when you couldn't, so you have all this immense amount of knowledge, research says that they are not working. And we are surgeons. We are implanting these in our patients. We are the ones that changing our patients' lives. It's our duty to show what we're doing is right. And we haven't done that. You know, and so anyway, so when I was writing this book, I wanted to bring about this notion, but I didn't want this book to be just a complaint kind of a book. So what I decided is that the best thing to do is to transfer my knowledge of 20 years of practicing as a spine surgeon to my patients so they would understand what us as spine surgeons we go through to the patient who needs surgery who doesn't need surgery who would benefit from a surgery so the first four chapters the eight chapter the book is eight chapters the first four chapters is about me teaching public about back pain what causes it and the treatments and then the chapter five and on is about what has happened and where do we go from here? Because I truly believe that if somebody comes up and raises an issue and complains about a state of a event, they have to come up with solutions. If they don't have a solutions, it's worthless. So that's why I had to come up with the solutions to say, this is what we have to do to put a roadmap for the future of spine surgery. Basically. And you were saying both on, and during the pre-show that... You would recommend this book for like even family practice for us to get a better understanding of our patients' back pain and the things that we're dealing with them. Correct. So this is about people. See, this is a situation I was kind of getting frustrated. I got frustrated, got used to, and then got frustrated again. You know, every time I talk about surgery to my patients, they just like, oh my God, they get so scared. And uh, it's just very scary to talk about surgery. And, you know, some people expect to do one surgery and all the pain go away. Some people say, hey, why am I need a second surgery? So I really think spine surgeons haven't done favor for themselves and for their patients to, to educate them what we do, what we have available to us, what we don't. And people who read this book, they understand now what we can do for them and what we can't do. Because, for example, notion of multiple surgeries. In my book, I explained that some people, they have a local. I divide my patients into two categories, simple and complex. Simple if they have one or two discs that are bad. Complex if they have three or more. Why is that important? It's important because 
When you go to the complex section, your problem goes from a localized area into a regional area. So if you're a patient that has a localized area, these are the patients that they do great with surgery. Now, if people have a regional problem, have like three or four of these that are bad, then the notion of one surgery and then everything go away is just not realistic. These are the people that we have to manage them throughout the years. Therefore, the notion of multiple surgery is not a futile, it's not a bad you know, outcome, bad plan. This is just something that we have available for the patient. And then that's something that needs to be communicated to the patient so they understand what they're getting themselves into. So if they decide to go that route, they need to understand that's the last resort. They have to do whatever they can not to have the surgery. And then if everything fails and if they're just miserable that they cannot continue like that, then they have to go that path, go down that path. So, Doc, we've covered a lot of stuff tonight. Other than getting your book, what would be a yes. final parting thought you want the crowd to hear before we get off tonight? Obviously, we uh, want sure. everybody to read it, uh, but... Is there anything like maybe that's not directly in the book or something you're just like, this is vital information. You got to know this before you get the book and it'll make it all make sense. One thing that I want to say that I actually shot some videos for every chapter. So I figured, you know, some people might understand, some people might not. Some people can read the book, some people can't. So I actually have explained every chapter with a video. And hopefully this website will come up pretty soon. And the website is spine corporate spinebook.com so corporate spinebook.com so hopefully like today is december 21st 2022 hopefully within a week or so this website would be up and running so if the patients want to watch the videos first and then read the book so they have some sort of a background or read the book they didn't understand it or they don't want to read the book they can watch these videos and i try to explain them so that would help them because this book is for everyone you don't have to be a doctor or in the healthcare to read this book. If you have back pain, if you're older, if you've had surgeries, you would benefit from this. Awesome. Well, Miss Tina, is there any last thoughts you want to share with Dr. Asley before we go? I can't really think of anything in particular. I do appreciate you and all the work that you've put into this. And I, I can appreciate your wife, too, for being <laughs> yeah. concerned about that. I could... I kind of empathize with her. It's that is a very bold and brave thing that you are doing to put yourself out there. I've been looking up the this information as you were as we've been discussing this and it is all over the internet and it is telling how there are all these these articles you can find from like 2007, 2009, 2011 about probes into the situation and physicians gaining financially from, you know, Medtronic and all of this. And then it just goes away. <laughs> and I'm just like, what happened? You know? So I think this is, it's interesting. It's, it's something that I don't, I feel like there's so many things like this, as we said earlier, in healthcare that go on. And it's like, how do you turn the Titanic around? It takes a long time, but you're doing, you know, you're doing the one, putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get your message out there. And I know writing a book is not easy. And so putting yourself out there like that, I appreciate you so much for all the hard work that you've put into this. Thank you. And, you know, I got to tell you, it was a very, every thing that I've said in the book, I had to think 10 times about it 
to make sure that's the right thing. But I'm going to end with one thing. When I say people that, oh, I'm writing a book, and this is about the fact that everything we've done so far is wrong, they, you know, they look at me is like, what are you yeah, talking that'll about? That'll grab your attention. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. And I have to tell them one thing. I have to show them literally one thing, and they will go, and I see their jaws drop. Just do this. Google Zedeblik Spine Fusion. If you Google right now Zedeblik Spine Fusion, you will see that paper by Dr. Zedeblik comes up. If you look at that, you will see that it was published in 1993, okay? If you look at that closely, you will see that's been referenced in 1,100 articles. And you can see that's a preliminary report. How in the world? This paper is the most referenced paper in the entire world of spine surgery. Right now, if you open North American Spine Society website, and you look for the section that looks for recommendations, and the section that they talk about use of the screws, they have Dr. Zdeblik's paper as a main reference. And I tell you right now, how in the world a preliminary report can become, and that, that's been proven, that's been unf- that's has not been finished, it's abandoned in the middle. There's no final report. How in the world a preliminary report has become a quintessential, most referenced paper in any special. Well, especially when there's six others refuting it. That makes it very, very hard to understand. Multi-center, multinational. You want let me tell you a story now. This is a this is an interesting story. It, this just tells you what I'm dealing with. Okay. So I was in 2016, I was in North American Spine Society. At that time, I was just starting to put the two and two together. So I was nowhere close to where I am today. I was just starting to start questioning and approaching professors and say, hey, what's going on here? So I got up in front of 600 spine surgeons and I said, look, there's multiple papers that says that these screws don't work. So from here. And then the panelists, you know, and I didn't want to get in the fight because these are my professors. These are very famous people. Who am I to question them? And one of the professors in the panel made an explanation that didn't make sense, but I didn't want to attack him. So I stopped. I sat down. 20 minutes later, listen to this now. 20 minutes later, I'm in a line to get coffee. I'm talking to a surgeon. He introduces me to a surgeon behind me that was standing behind me. He says, oh, this is Dr. Asley. This is Dr. So-and-so. I'm not going to mention name. The surgeon behind me says, and he tells him, he says, Dr. Asley doesn't like the screws. And the surgeon behind me says, oh, you're the gentleman that questioned the screws and you said that that made that comment. Well, I got to tell you that we all are welcome to our opinions, but I just want to tell you that you're very wrong. I said, it's not about me. I have nothing to do with it. All I'm saying is that all this research says that stuff doesn't work. Maybe, just maybe they're trying to tell us something. He said, listen to this. He said, I know. I published those papers. Those are my patients. I'm like, oh, yeah, what's your name? He told me that my, his name, and I had the papers in my hand. I said, well, let's find it. It was the second paper in my hand. His name 
was on the paper. He was the fifth author. He said, see, that's me. These are my patients. I'm like, okay, let's read your paper. At the end, the last sentence said, based on this evidence, we do not recommend routine use of pedicle screws in spinal fusions. He looked at it. He stroked his chin. He said, no, that's wrong. And he walked away. <laughs> to his own paper. <laughs> I kid you not. I swear to God. And this is not some story that I, this is my, this has happened to me. This is what I'm dealing with. <laughs> yeah, when people are refusing their own work, that's pretty tough. <laughs> well, Doc, it has been a very entertaining and really great look into something that I think we all have heard about. We all know somebody that has had a back surgery or has bad back, but nobody ever really learns about what it takes to fix it. So hearing it from, well, lack of a better term, their horse's mouth, that has been fantastic for me. Ben, do you have any last thoughts? No, I'm, I'm just kind of in shock and listening to that. And I was actually kind of researching it while I, while we were talking. So Yeah, it's the word shock, I would use frequently during the last part of this interview. Yeah. 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 But but I just want to say that there are good news with, with, with e-printing, with laser drilling, with materials that we have now that we didn't have 10 years ago. We do have the power to come up with the appropriate devices. So the future is bright. Right. Except somehow, <laughs> somehow, somebody, and it's not going to happen from inside because I've tried it. Somehow, somebody has to tell these surgeons, the leaders of my field, saying that, hey, man, you might want to take a second look at this. <laughs> and that's all I'm asking for. <laughs> well, I think that's a good question. Right, right. Miss Tina? Thank you very yeah, much for that. having me. No, I had a great time, Doc. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all of your hard work. And Tom and Ben, remind everybody where they can find you and your podcast. Uh, you can find us at justonpodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, all that good stuff. Our other podcast is We'll Continue to Monitor. That's also at justonpodcast.com. So you can find everything over there. And you know you can find me at goodnursebadnurse.com and we're on all social media at goodnursebadnurse. You can email me at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse.